Well, today we're going to begin our fall series in the book of 2 Timothy. So you can turn there now if you'd like, 2 Timothy. We're calling this series Exponential, and here's why. I don't know if you've studied the history of the church, but it grew rapidly. It grew exponentially after this book, after 2 Timothy was written. So let, let me walk you through what happened to the church. I don't mean a particular local church, but the church in the world, the total number of Christians on the planet. When the church began around 33 AD, after the resurrection of Jesus, we're told in the book of Acts there were around 120 believers. So total number of Christians in the world, 120. By the time that Paul wrote 2 Timothy, towards the end of his life, it's actually the last book that he wrote, a few months later he was beheaded by the Roman emperor. By the time of his death, around 68 AD, the entire church in the world numbered in the thousands. Then by the end of the first century, it had grown to the tens of thousands. And by 280, hundreds of thousands, 380 millions, 480 tens of millions. It actually was the predominant religion in the entire Roman Empire by 400 AD. That is exponential growth. I could not map it because it just looked like a straight line and then shot up. And so that begs the question, how did the church, how did Christianity, this crazy religion about some criminal who was executed and then came back from the dead, how did it grow from 120 to tens of millions of people within a few hundred years? Well, the book of 2 Timothy is the answer. It tells us how God grew his church exponentially in those first centuries of his existence. And even more significantly, it will tell us how God can grow his church exponentially today right here through us. So each Sunday, we're going to learn a lesson about how God grows his church exponentially. This morning is lesson number one. God grows his church exponentially when his people fan into flame the gift of his spirit. It's a big idea of this first passage. So look with me starting in verse 1 of 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. As I studied this passage this week, it reminded me of when I was a kid and I went to summer camp in the hill country of Texas. Each summer, I'd go for a week into the hill country. And during that week that I was at camp, there would always be an afternoon when our counselor would take us to the kitchen and we would make hobo dinners. I know different people call them different things, tinfoil dinners, silver turtles, all kinds of different names for them. The idea, if you've never made one of these, you take a big piece of tinfoil and you throw a chunk of raw hamburger meat in the middle and then you put butter and cheese and vegetables and A1 steak sauce and you wrap it all up and you take it out in the wilderness 
and you start a fire and you put that dinner on the fire and you cook it. And so we would make these hobo dinners and then go into the wilderness and we'd have to make a fire. And I remember how hard that was for a bunch of little kids because they didn't let you bring lighter fluid. You couldn't use any man-made stuff. You had to build the fire with natural stuff that was around you. And so all of us little kids would, would get in a circle and we would begin to make this little fire and we'd have to protect it because in the hill country of Texas, the wind is always blowing. And so it's always threatening to, to extinguish your little flame. And so we would all sit around it. And, and you couldn't use paper or lighter fluid. So what we'd do is we'd go rip bark off cedar trees and roll it up. If you're ever stranded in the Austin Hill Country, just go do that. Bark off a cedar tree, roll it, turns into wool. And you can take that wool and put it in a, in a little pile and you, and you light it. And you get just a tiny little flame. And, and once that's lit, then you can put some little sticks on it. And once they catch, then you can put limbs on it. Once they catch, you can put logs on it. And I always remember that by the time the fire was lit and giving heat, I was covered in sweat. I was just drenched because it's Texas in the summer. But we needed that fire. All the work was worth it. Because we were out in the boonies and that fire was our only source of light. And it was the only way to cook that dinner. Our meat was still raw. We needed that food. That story reminds me of what the spiritual life is like. Because life for believers is much like us trying to build that fire. Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew chapter 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God created you and saved you so that you would be a light to the world. So that you would be this, this little flame of God's truth and God's love to a dark and dying world. So God created you to be a light to the world. The problem is the world keeps trying to blow you out. That's what the world does. It tries to extinguish the flame that God has planted within us. Why? Because for people who are used to living in the darkness, it's very uncomfortable to be pulled out in the light. They don't like the light. And so they want to make us look like them. Because if we look like the rest of the world, then they will not feel convicted. They will not feel guilty for their sin. And so God created you to be a light to the world, but the world keeps trying to blow you out. And so the big idea of this passage, the the command of this passage, is that verb in verse 6, fan into flame. God is calling us to fan into flame the gift of God within us. So that's the big idea, fan into flame. So let's talk about that word a little bit, fan into flame. It's anaza pareo in the New Testament, and this is the only verse it's used in. So we actually have to go outside of the New Testament to find what this word means. So we go to the book of Genesis, the Greek translation of that book. And in Genesis forty-five seventeen, it says, When they told him all the words of Joseph, that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wet wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And there's the word, revived. A little background. So Jacob is the father of a boy named Joseph, but unfortunately Jacob thinks Joseph is dead for much of the story, most of the story in the book of Genesis. And when Joseph heard that his, when Jacob heard that his son Joseph was dead, he fell into despair. The guy spent years, maybe decades, clinically depressed over the loss of his son. 
But then he finds out. Surprise of surprises. Joseph is actually alive in Egypt and doing well. He's running the whole country. And Jacob hears about that and it revives his soul. So you've got a guy who is just cowering in despair. He is awoken to hope and joy. That's what the word means in that verse. Another interesting place where the word is used is in a book called Maccabees. It was written by the Jews after the Old Testament. It records the story of the nation of Israel going to war with the nations uh, that were called Syria at the time. And the Israelites were way outnumbered. So they're terrified. Things are looking really bad. But then a leader, a guy named Simon, stands up in the middle of the battlefield and he goes all braveheart on him. He makes this great battlefield speech. He says all kinds of things about how they're going to win, but I will avenge my nation and the sanctuary and your wives and children for all the nations have gathered together out of hatred to destroy us. He stirs them up and apparently according to Maccabees the speech works because then it tells us the spirit of the people was rekindled that same word again when they heard these words and they answered in a loud voice you are our leader all that you say to us we will do. So in this case, you have a group of people who who aren't crushed by despair. They're crushed by fear. They feel incredible fear, incredible anxiety because they face a powerful army. And so Simon speaks these words and it revives courage within them. It inspires confidence in their spirit. And so this word, to fan into flame, what does it mean? Well, very simply, it means to awaken courage and hope. In the heart of someone who has been crushed by despair or fear. Awaken courage and hope in the heart of someone crushed by despair or fear. For Timothy, it was fear. That was his issue. If we were in Sunday school, we would call Timothy timid Timothy because that's what he struggled with all the time. That's why in verse 7, Paul has to specifically say, For God gave us a spirit not of fear. Timothy, not of fear. Paul knew that Timothy, his young protege, struggled with fear often. He often felt inadequate. He often felt self-doubt. We see that in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. He says, now if Timothy comes, see that he, is with you, that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. You can kind of read between the lines there, right? Paul's concerned because Timothy struggles with fear. So please don't do anything that will give him even more cause for fear. Timothy was a a timid young man who struggled with fear and anxiety on many occasions. But when the book of 2 Timothy was written, Timothy is now in a huge role. He is actually the pastor of the church in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was like the New York of the ancient world. I had a chance to go there last summer. It is grand even in its ruins. Beautiful city. It was like the cultural and financial capital of that part of Asia. Now, Timothy has been appointed to be the pastor of this growing church in this incredibly important city, and Timothy feels a great deal of fear, a great deal of anxiety. He feels like he's in over his head. He's afraid that he's going to screw up and ruin the church in this most important city. And so Timothy is weighed down by fear. This passage is a call to courage. Timothy, don't give in to fear, fan into flame, find hope, find confidence, find courage. That message is not just for Timothy. It's for all of us. Because I'm just going to take a guess here. I'm betting that every single person in this room has felt overwhelmed by fear or anxiety or doubt or depression at some point in your life. 
I know I have. I've been open about my own struggles with doubt and depression over the course of my life. I've counseled enough of you to know many of you struggle with that right now. If you're a parent of a young kid, I know you feel that way at 6 p.m. every day because that's the witching hour. That's when our kids go nuts. That's when their disobedience is increasing at the same time that our energy reserves are decreasing and there will be tears and our kids will cry too. (laughs) So I know you feel overwhelmed. And students, you're getting your syllabi tomorrow, so I know you're about to feel like Timothy. Because we were all there. We were in school. We know how overwhelming it is. It's stressful. And so we have all of these circumstances in our lives, like kids in classes that overwhelm us. But beyond that, we just also have the crushing disappointments of life that we all see. You share your faith with a friend for the hundredth time and they still aren't interested in Jesus. And you know what that means. If that doesn't change in the course of their life and that just crushes you. You commit to walk with the Lord in purity. You are going to be holy and then you go too far with your girlfriend again. Or you look at porn again and you feel hopeless. Or you make the fatal error of actually reading the news. And you see how awful the world is. And you have no idea how it can ever get better. And it just fills you with despair. We all struggle with fear and despair Throughout the course of our lives. And so this passage is a call to us to find courage and find hope by fanning into flame the gift of God that is within us. Okay, so that's the goal. That's where we're going this morning. How can we replace fear and despair with hope and courage? That's the goal. So we need to fan into flame this gift of God within us. First question then you got to ask is what is this gift of God within us? What is this gift that God has given to us? That's the first question that you have to wrestle with. So look again at verses 6 and 7. These verses are linked. Verse 7 explains verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Spirit there is probably not capitalized in your Bible, but it should be. It is the Holy Spirit that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the fact that all believers have been given the Holy Spirit. The moment that you trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came to live in your life. Paul talks about that in the book of Titus, chapter 3. He saved us. God saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What Paul is saying is that the moment you were justified, the moment you received eternal life by trusting in Jesus as your Savior, God poured out his Holy Spirit into your life. The Holy Spirit came to live inside of you forever. That's true for all believers. The instant you trust in Jesus... The instant you say to God, yes, God, I believe that your son Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead to give me eternal life. Thank you for that gift. In that instant, God justifies you, saves you, gives you eternal life and fills you with his Holy Spirit forever. So if you've trusted in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And he's the best kind of house guest because he brings gifts with him. 
He brings things into your life, wonderful things. And there's four in particular that Paul mentions in this passage, four gifts from the Spirit. The first is there in verse 6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That is a reference to spiritual gifts that God has given. So the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he fills us with spiritual gifts, a spiritual gift is a supernatural ability that God gives you that enables you to serve other people. That's all a spiritual gift is. Supernatural ability God gives you to serve other people. We know a lot about Timothy's spiritual gifts because Paul talked about them a lot. In this passage, also back in 1 Timothy, Paul said, Until I come, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This is Timothy's spiritual gifts. His particular gifts were the gifts of teaching and pastoring. And that's why in both this passage and the passage we read, Paul talks about laying his hands on Timothy. That kind of can sound weird to people. Like, was Paul magical? He had like magic hands. He lays them on Timothy and Timothy can do all. No, it's not what's going on. Timothy got his spiritual gifts from God the moment he trusted in Jesus. But Timothy's particular spiritual gift was pastoring and he did not have an opportunity to fully use that gift until the church commissioned him to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And so they did it much like we do. When we commission a pastor, the elders lay their hands on him. It's a sign of authority that God has called this man to be pastor over the church. And so Paul's saying at that moment, Timothy, you had the opportunity to use your gifts, but you always had them. Why? Because All believers have spiritual gifts. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12. To each believer is given the manifestation or the presence of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, to another faith, to another gifts of healing. And he goes on and on and lists more and more of spiritual gifts that God gives to people. The point is that God has given one or more gifts to every believer, every person in this room who has trusted in Jesus, you have one or more spiritual gifts, these supernatural abilities to serve other people. So that's the first thing that God's spirit gives you when he comes to live inside of you. He gives you these spiritual gifts. But that's not all because the passage goes on and tells us in verse 7 that the spirit also gives you the power, the love, and the self-control to use these gifts to bless other people. The Holy Spirit gives you God's own power, God's own love, God's own self-control, or you could translate that discipline. He gives you these things, and let's just be clear about this. He gives you a power, a love, and a discipline that the world know nothing about. The world understands power. That's nothing compared to the power God has given you. The world thinks it knows love. It doesn't, but it thinks it knows love. That's nothing compared to the sacrificial, selfless love that God's Spirit has given you. The world thinks it knows self-control. It doesn't. It's nothing compared to the self-control, the supernatural self-control the Spirit can give you. Okay, so the Spirit, when he comes to live inside of you, he's the best guest imaginable. He brings gifts with him. He fills your life with spiritual gifts and with God's own power and love and discipline. And so all of this power, all of this love, all of this discipline is available to us when we feel fearful and discouraged. When you feel fear, when you feel despair, all you need is the Spirit's power, love, and discipline to come upon you and it will replace fear and despair with courage and hope. That's a big idea and that gets us to the really practical part of this sermon. How do we do it? 
How do we fan into flame these gifts of the Spirit in our life? Because that's what we want, right? We want power. We want love. We want discipline. We want to have courage and hope. So how do we, practically speaking, this week as school is starting, what do we as believers need to do to stoke this fire of God's Spirit in our lives? To fan into flame His power, His love, and His discipline. I'm going to give you four steps. Four very practical things you can do this week to grow this fire of the Holy Spirit in your life. So first thing that you need to do is give thanks. This takes us back to last week's sermon. Talked all, all, the whole morning on this one point. It comes up a whole lot because it's really a big deal. If you want to fan into flame the gifts of the Spirit in you, you got to give thanks. We talked last week about how the practice of gratitude, the practice of giving thanks, is the spiritual equivalent of duct tape. It will fix anything that's broken in your life. If you have a problem, if you have something in your life that's broken, the number one solution, the first thing you go to always is the discipline of gratitude. You stop and give thanks. That's how you fix everything that ails you in the spiritual life. And so Paul, in this first seven verses of his book, he reminds Timothy of all of these amazing things that Timothy has to be thankful for. So the first thing he says in verse 1, he reminds Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy already had this life in Christ Jesus. That's the gift of eternal life. We looked at that gift a few weeks ago and and we talked about the gift of eternal life. What did it cost for you to get eternal life? Cost Jesus, right? Jesus had to exchange his life so that you could have life. So now let's think about relative value. What is the value of Jesus versus everything else? Well, Jesus is the creator. The creator is always greater than his creation. So Jesus is more valuable than all of the universe put together. And that was the price that was paid so that you could have eternal life. So if you have eternal life, you are already the richest of the rich. You are the lucky ones. Because you have the most valuable thing that has ever been given to anyone. So Paul starts by reminding Timothy, Timothy, you have eternal life and nothing compares to that. Not only though did Timothy have eternal life, but in verse 2, Paul calls Timothy his beloved child. Timothy had found a mentor in Paul. Paul was not his biological father, he was his spiritual father. He helped Timothy to grow up in the faith. But Timothy didn't just have Paul as a mentor. We're told in verse 5 about his mom and his grandmother who were believers and who mentored him in the faith. So Timothy had this rich heritage of Christian teaching over the course of his life. Paul's point is, Timothy, you're incredibly blessed. Let's first, before we get down to the business of this letter, let's give thanks for all God's done for you. Well, that same principle applies to us. Now, I I don't know the details of your life. I don't know if you have a mentor like Paul. I don't know if you have a believing mom or grandmother. What I do know is that if you know Jesus, you have been blessed. If you know Jesus, you are the luckiest of the lucky. You have eternal life. Somebody loved you enough to tell you about Jesus. Somebody loved you enough to bring you to church so that you could find a spiritual family in this place. You are incredibly blessed. And so the first step to fanning into flame the gifts of the Spirit in your life, His power, His love, His discipline, is to stop and say thank you to God. 
to just get into that practice of stopping throughout the day and giving thanks for everything good God has done for you. So I'm going to give you the same application I gave you last week because the word of God hasn't changed since then. So same thing I want you to do. I actually would like you to do this every week for the rest of your life so you can stop when you're dead. Um, Every week from now on, one day of the week when you sit down to pray, here's the rule. You must give thanks for five minutes before you're allowed to ask God for anything. Just one day a week, one day out of seven, when you sit down and it's time to pray, set the timer on your phone, give thanks for five minutes. List out to God, say thank you for all the good things he's given you. And after five minutes of giving thanks, then you can ask him for stuff. That will begin to build the habit of gratitude in your life. And as that habit grows, you will be fanning into flame the gifts of the spirit in your life. So that's step number one, give thanks. Step number two to fanning the spirit into flame is avoid sin. Now this one's just pretty much logical. If the Holy Spirit is our only source of God's power, love, and discipline, then it's probably good not to do stuff that ticks him off, right? So Paul talks about that a number of times in the New Testament. He tells us in the book of 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the spirit, quench, that's a, a really useful word. When we talk about the flame of the spirit, it's like pouring water on the flame of the spirit. Now, let's, let's clarify. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. He's God. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. And yet, he has chosen to make his work in your life dependent on your willingness. If you choose sin instead of obedience, you are pouring water on the work of the Holy Spirit in your life so that you can't experience his love, his, his power, his discipline, his spiritual gifts in your life. You're not losing the Holy Spirit. Let's be clear about that. Quenching the Spirit isn't losing the Spirit. He lives in you forever. But you are quenching his power at work in your life. You are cutting yourself off from the hope and the peace that he wants to give you. That's why Paul warns us, do not quench the spirit. And then he tells us how. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What does it mean to to despise prophecies? Well, that's a fancy way of saying disobeying this book. This is the prophetic word of God. To despise it is to say, I don't care what God has said. I'm going to do what I want. When you choose to live a life of sin, when you choose to walk in sin, you are quenching the spirit. So if you want to fan into flame the power and love and discipline of the Holy Spirit in your life, you must choose to avoid sin. That doesn't mean perfection. None of us are going to be perfect. But you've got to choose to try to walk in obedience. Paul brings that same point up in Ephesians 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Same kind of word, same kind of idea. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. These sins are about how we treat each other. If we're mean to each other, if we're selfish, if we gossip, if we stir up strife and contention, that grieves the Holy Spirit. It cuts us off from his power and love and his work in our lives. So the the basic idea of this second point, you need to understand, sin suffocates God's power and love and discipline in your life. When you choose to sin, you are pouring water on the power, love, and discipline of God in your life. And I want you to take that truth on faith because here's what's going to happen. 
The next time that you feel overwhelmed by fear or anxiety or despair or depression, the evil one is going to whisper in your ear, why not just give in to that temptation? Because life is already awful. How can it get any worse? And at least you'll feel better for a moment. What's the harm it could do? Well, here's the harm it could do. Choosing to sin when you're feeling despair, hopelessness, fear. It's like the alcoholic who reaches for another beer to take the edge off his hangover. Does him no good in the long run. It just makes it worse in the end. That's what it's like when you feel despair, when you feel fear and you choose to sin. Because that sin is cutting you off from the only thing that can pull you out of the whole of despair and fear that you have fallen into. You need the spirit at work in your life. You need his power. You need his love. You need his discipline. But he only offers it to those who are willing to walk in obedience. And so when the evil one whispers to you, hey, what's the worst that could happen? Why not give in to temptation? No, that's the worst possible advice. You are cutting yourself off from the only thing that can save you from fear and despair. So do whatever it takes to obey God. I cannot count how many people have come to my office overwhelmed by doubt or by depression and they talk to me about their life and the first piece of advice I give them is in the middle of this struggle, in the middle of this darkness that you're living in, please do not use this as an excuse to sin or this is never going to get better. We've got no hope of recovery if you give in to sin right now. Because you're cutting yourself off from the supernatural power of the spirit in your life. So avoid sin. You must avoid sin. Third step to fanning into flame the power, love, and discipline of the spirit in your life is to get to work. Get to work. What do I mean by that? Well, I was thinking this week about the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of you may be familiar with that story about a guy who was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's mugged, which was actually really common back then. It's a really dangerous road. And so this gang of robbers beat him and steal his stuff and leave him half dead. And then a priest walks by, sees the guy and does nothing, just keeps walking. Then a Levite walks by, a leader of the Jewish faith, and he sees the guy but does nothing, just keeps walking. And then a Samaritan walks up, a guy who is hated by the Jews. He walks up and he sees this guy in need and he gets off his donkey and he bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey, takes him to an inn and nurses him back to health at his own expense. Amazing story. But here's the thing that was really sticking out to me this week. The thing that really struck me. Do you recognize it in the story of the good Samaritan? Nothing is done about the robbers. No one pursues them. They are not arrested. They are not brought to justice. I'm sure they robbed another guy the next day. Why? Because that happened all the time in the ancient world. So the good Samaritan, he did nothing to reduce the frequency of muggings on the road to Jericho. But Jesus is pleased with him because he did something to help someone in need. That's really convicted me this week. Because my background, if you don't know me, I was an engineer. Engineers, we seem to see the global problem. We see the big picture. And so I turn on the news and I see the big picture. And I see a lot of problems I cannot fix. I see problems like violence 
and poverty and racism and war and worst of all, disbelief. People rejecting Jesus. And I know there's nothing I can do to fix any of those. And so the engineer in my head kicks in and says, so why bother trying? You can't fix poverty, so why give to the poor? You can't fix racism, so why think about it? You can't fix unbelief, so why share your faith? And I use my despair over my inability to fix anything to keep me from doing anything. And then I read this story about the Good Samaritan and I recognize, wait a minute, Blake. God isn't asking you to fix any of those problems. That's good, because I'm not. I will not fix any of the problems that plague our world. But, dadgummit, I can do something to help someone in need. And that's all God wants from me. I don't have to fix any of the big stuff. Just help someone in need. Get to work. If you will do what the Good Samaritan does, if you will get off your donkey and help the guy in front of you who's in need, you're not going to fix the global problems. But you will please God. By doing something to help someone in need. And that will stir the flame. It will fan the flame of the spirit in your life. That, that's really struck me this summer as I've been thinking about my own life. My own calling. I'm trying to find ways to use my gifts, my experiences to, to help someone in need. I can't fix poverty in Bryan College Station. But maybe I can help one person get their car working again. Because that's what I like to do. And they can get to work and keep a job. All I got to do is help one. Get to work somehow. Help someone in need by doing something. And that will fan into flame the gift of the Spirit in you. Now some of you would say, wait a minute, Blake, I don't know anybody in need. Well, if that's you, please just come ask us. We know plenty. We will help connect you with needs in our community. You can just come talk to us. If you go to our website, there is a a word that says serve up at the top. Click that. You'll see a lot of ways to serve, a lot of community organizations you can partner with, or just come talk to any of us on staff. We would love to connect you with some need that with your gifts, your experiences, and your resources, you can do something about. And as you get to work serving others, it will fan in the flame the gift of the Spirit in you. Okay, fourth step. If you want to fan into flame the gift of the Spirit, you got to join with other believers. It tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. If you want to fan into flame the gift of the Spirit, you got to join with other believers who will encourage you. But here's the problem. When you begin to fear... And when you begin to despair, the last thing you want is to be around other people. You want to isolate yourself because you feel ashamed. You want to isolate yourself because you feel embarrassed. You look around and it seems like everybody else has their life together. They're so, so clean, so perfect. And here you are, such a mess. And so you hear this voice in your head saying, you, you can't be with them. You can't be honest with them because you'd be ashamed. They would look down upon you. And above all else, you would be a burden to them. Who wants to be around that? And so we close ourselves off. We isolate ourselves. What we need to recognize is that voice we're hearing in our head that tries to isolate us. That's not God. That's Satan. Because Satan wants to quench the fire of God's spirit in your life. And the easiest way to do that is to isolate you. How do I know that? Because think about a campfire. 
And you ever been out in the woods and you build a campfire and then it's time to put it out? What do you do? You can pour water on it, but that takes a long time. All you got to do, pull the logs apart. Right? Pull the logs apart and they'll die down. And soon they'll go out. Because the log in isolation won't burn. So that's Satan's strategy for your life. If you want to know, what is Satan doing? It's very simple. He's going to deceive you to try to get you alone. Because if you're alone, then the fire burns out. And so it is essential that when you feel fear or anxiety or despair or hopelessness, you must surround yourself with other believers who you can be honest and open with, who will pray for you, who will encourage you and speak truth to you. You need that and they need that too. They need you speaking truth into their life and encouraging them because here's the thing that I've learned being a pastor now for more than 12 years, counseled a lot of people. I've come to the conviction that no human being other than Jesus has ever had their life together. We are all a mess. Can I get an amen to that? Some of us are just better at hiding it than others. So everyone here is a mess. We all struggle with fear and despair and depression and anxiety, at least from time to time. If we're honest about that and open with each other and join together with one another, then we will have strength when the evil one attacks us. The flame of the spirit in each of us individually can grow as we join together. So how do you do that? How do you find this community that you can grow with? Well, I would take you back to what Trey mentioned at the beginning of the service. If you go to our website, grace-bible.org, and click connect, we have a million and one ways for you to connect with other believers here at the church. Lots of different opportunities. If the number of those opportunities overwhelm you, which I totally understand, please come talk to one of us. And we will help you to find a a group that can, can come around you and encourage you so you can walk with the Lord this semester. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to respond this morning in worship. We're going to sing a song many of you have heard before, In Christ Alone. We're going to sing this song because it is the exact response God wants from us in this moment. We're going to join together and we are going to sing this song as an opportunity to give thanks for what God has done in our lives through Jesus. So here's a few of the lyrics that you're about to sing. In verse 1 you're going to sing, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. In verse 4, you're going to sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. As you sing these words, I want you to reflect on the absolute truthfulness of this. It doesn't matter whether you feel it or not. Your emotions are not your master. According to the passage we have just studied, this is true. Christ in you, the spirit of Jesus in you, is your source of hope and peace and power and love that can transcend and wipe away all fear, all anxiety, all despair, all guilt, all shame. And so as we sing this song, what I'm going to challenge you to do is sing it to the Lord. This is not about singing to your neighbor. It's about singing to the Lord these words as an offering of thanks. So you're singing these words saying, God, this is true. I believe this is true, God. Thank you that this is true for me. So let me take us into prayer. And then John Mark is going to take us into worship so that we can say thank you to God. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you that you are the kind of God who has given us an incredible amount to say thank you for. You have blessed us. We are so sorry that we so often forget that. We see ourselves as somehow deficient, as somehow left out. We are so sorry for that, God. We are so blessed 
Help us to see that. Help us to believe that, that we are the top 1% of the top 1% of the top 1% of humanity because we know your son. We praise you for the gift of eternal life that he has given us. We thank you that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit who has given us your power and your love and your discipline and your gifts in our lives. We praise you that you have been so gracious to us, so rich to us, not because we deserve it, not because we have earned it, but because you are a good and gracious God. We praise you, Heavenly Father. You are so infinitely good to us who are so unworthy. Thank you for your grace, we pray. Amen.